0: That's Psalm 1, starting at verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction.
1: Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned
2: Fantastic. Let's pray as we look at Ephesians 4 together. You've got an outline which will uh, help you see where we're going. Great God in heaven, please would you prepare our hearts to respond rightly to your word. Would you deepen our understanding about the truth of your salvation and the change it brings. But also would you grow in us a hatred for sin and a willingness to change. That translates into really different lives. For your glory's sake. Amen. Now, the, the big image in this passage we've got tonight is clothes. You can probably tell I'm no great fashionista, but even I can get the point that's being made here. New spiritual life in Jesus Christ is pictured as fresh, clean clothes that Jesus gives us to wear. I just watched uh, the, the incredible Peter Jackson documentary, The First World War. Have you seen it the, with the updated footage? It's absolutely extraordinary thing. And right at the end of it, you see what happens as the soldiers come home. And they arrive back. Many of them had literally only been given one uniform that had lasted, in some cases, four years of war. And so they arrive home in, this, in these filthy, literally flea-ridden, blood-stained, mud-spattered uniforms. And now that they're going into civilian life, they're told to take those off and they're given a new suit of clothes. A fresh, clean suit of clothes was the, was the gift to each of the soldiers as they left. They can take off the clothes of war and they can now wear clean clothes of peace. It would be pretty odd if uh, a month or two later you saw a soldier in, in December, January 1918, 1919, going to work in London and he's wearing again his mud spattered bloody uniform carrying a rifle and a bayonet i think hang on it's not just odd it just shows you haven't worked out we're at peace the war's over wearing those clothes that that is a seriously twisted way to think you've got to get rid of that lose the old and put on the new and in ephesians 4 we see god has given us new clothes if you like he's given us a freedom in Jesus Christ, a freedom for us to live out lives that serve Him, and so He says, "Look, put off the old self with with its sinful behavior, and put on the new. Put on different clothes. Live as God's free people." That's His message for us tonight. Um, but to understand why it matters so much that we we dress appropriately, that we we put on the right clothes, that we live the right lives. To understand why that's so important, you have to just recall where we've come from in Ephesians and think about the story so far. Now, if you flick back to Ephesians 1, 10, Paul told us that God's central plan for the universe, God's great plan to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's great plan is to restore this broken world And key to that plan is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is to be the king who brings peace and wholeness and life to everybody. That's how God overcomes the three great barriers to to peace and wholeness. Firstly, the the evil forces in the world. And secondly, our, our own sinful desires that just don't want to obey God and submit to his good king. And then thirdly, those sinful desires also mean that Because I want to do what I want to do, I end up in conflict with other humans. And that's what we see around the world. So chapter 1 verse 10, God's plan is to overcome all of these forces that are against him. And to bring unity and the blessed rule of Jesus Christ. Where we'll enjoy the freedom of living God's way. And the wholeness and the happiness that that will bring. And then just over in 3 verse 10... Paul tells us that the church is God's demonstration to the world that his plan is working. 110, his plan is to to bring all things back under the blessed rule of Jesus Christ, to bring unity to everything. 310, the proof that that plan works is the church. So he says in, uh, in 310, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. As we gather together a church, we prove that God has successfully overcome the evil forces that would keep us away from him. That God has successfully forgiven us for the the sins in our hearts that should mean we can't gather before him. But he's forgiven us. And as we gather, not just before him, but as we gather together before him, we show that he is overcoming the divisions that tear apart our world. And so this is why it really, really matters that each of us individually, if we if we call ourselves Christian, it really matters that each of us puts off the old self and puts on the new. Because the church can only fulfill its role of showing the world that there is something better, that Jesus Christ really is going to reconcile all things and that there is life in him. The church can only show the world that if the church stands out from the world, if the church is different from the world. If we in the church live the new lives that Jesus has given us, then the world can see that there is a different way. The temptation, I guess, for all of us, though, is just to live like everybody around us. Because we fear people's opinions and we crave people's approval. And the truth is, life is just a whole lot easier if you fit in. We all know that. And so we need to learn what, what Paul teaches here. And we need to pray for the Spirit's help that we'll take the lessons to heart. Our calling is to be who we truly are. To live as the free people of Christ. Now, one more thing to say before we dive into the passage. Uh, I think, therefore I do. Yes, we all know Descartes' famous dictum. See the only thing any of us ever know about Descartes. Uh, I think, therefore I am. But Paul says something slightly different here. He doesn't say, I think, therefore I am. He says, I think, therefore I do. He says, look, what's going to make the difference of whether you live for Jesus Christ or not as a Christian? What's going to make the difference? What's going to determine whether you put off the old and put on the new or not? Is how you think. He says, look, uh, how you think about God and how you think about yourselves and life in the world around, how you think determines how you will act. You see that from the very first verse we're going to be looking at, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Our behavior is driven by our thinking. So if I think that a no-deal Brexit is a great option. Then if I think like that, then I might launch a leadership challenge to Theresa May if she says, I've got a deal for Brexit. Well, I might not. I'm not, not a politician. No one will vote for me, but uh, I might do that. If I think a no-deal Brexit is the best thing for our country, then, then I'll try and stop the deal going through. I'm sorry, you thought this was the one hour of the week. You could escape all of that. Uh, or if I think that uh, the new boss who's been appointed to my company is brilliant if I think he's generous and is going to raise pay and he's brilliant in his field of work and he's going to bring in lots of new business, if I think that, then I'm going to work hard so I keep my job and I stay on the right side of him. If I truly think that Jesus is good and that his way of life is the way of life, if I truly think that the sins he saved me from are wicked and foul and deserve God's judgment, well then... I will obey Jesus. I'll do what he says and be delighted to do so. God has given us new life in Jesus Christ. And if we think God is good and God is true, then we'll live out that life. There we go. Dress appropriately the story so far. I think therefore I do. Let's get into the passage with that done. So firstly, put off the old and put on the new. Put off the old. Don't live how you used to. That's the message of the first few verses. Look with me at verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, Paul is not here encouraging a sort of judgmental attitude to the others, the Gentiles. If you look at three one, Paul addresses them as Gentiles. This is them he's talking about. In in two verse three, he says all of us lived in the way that he's talking about here, and nor is Paul saying all all people who are not Christians live just horrid lives, whereas Christians are just the most wonderful people. He's not saying that. He's talking about a basic reality, a generalization. And the basic reality that he's observing is that if you think there is no God, you will tend to disobey the rules that that God you don't believe in says. Pretty obvious. If you don't think the God of the Bible is truly God, you're going to disagree with, disobey, and ignore the rules in His Word. Now, different cultures will push back at different points, but if you think the God of the Bible doesn't exist, you are not going to obey His good rules for human flourishing. It's just obvious. And there is a clear order then that follows, a progression in these verses. You'll notice it. It begins with hearts that are hardened against God, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It starts with hardened hearts. That is to say, deep down for most of us human beings, the fundamental driving force of our religious views is we don't want there to be a God. We don't want there to be a God. If there's a God, I have to do what he says. And so we don't come neutrally to the question of, is there a God or is there not? Because it's much more convenient for me if he doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist, I can do what I like. And so our hearts are hardened to him. God is an inconvenient truth for people who want to live my way. The thought of God, it just doesn't move us. It doesn't attract us, doesn't delight us because we don't want God to be. And this hardness of heart leads to ignorance about God, verse 18. But that means the ignorance is blameworthy. So we're not innocent in our ignorance. We are ignorant of the truth about God, what he's like and and what he wants, because we don't want him to exist. We find it easy to be confused about him. We find it easy to to think there's not enough evidence because we don't want there to be evidence and clarity. Now, this isn't saying you can't get a PhD unless you're a Christian. This darkness that he's talking about concerns the things of God. And the way that we live flows out of this hardened heart, darkened thinking. Verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Now, lack of sensitivity is talking about consciences sort of seared, so that the skin is dead, can't feel. We're just not fussed about what God says no to anymore. And the last phrase about greed is better translated that there is a a continual desire for more of the same. We give in to uh, a whole variety of ungodly behaviours, and we're just never satisfied. There's just a lust for more and more and more. Our appetites for ungodliness are never ended. Now, sometimes this works out in sort of selfish individualism. I recognize no God but me. I remember walking around the corner of a, a road going between the park and the school um, a few months back, and this guy came tearing around in. It wasn't a sports car, but he thought it was. And uh, he'd painted it that way. And I did the, the very British thing, uh, passively, aggressively, tutted. And, <laughs> uh, and he stopped, wound down the window and asked me, excuse me, my chap, uh, I wonder, you seem to have a problem with my driving. or words to that effect. Uh, <laughs> and I said, I said look, there are, there are little kids running out here. You're going to run somebody over. You need to drive more slowly. And he thought for a second and said, I do what I want, mate, and you <laughs> gunned it off. I do what I want. That's one thing that flows from a rejection of God. The other, the other way that we, we behave is uh, not everybody just says, I do what I want. Uh, quite a lot of people will just do what everybody else does. So sometimes we reject God and we act like individuals. Other times we reject God and we just take our morality from the culture around us. We're incapable of critiquing what's bad in it because we just, we take it from the culture around us. That's what's right. That's what's good. But if you follow Jesus Christ, Paul says very clearly, I insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live this way. Now, there is a sort of perverse logic that you sometimes see in Christians. who think, look, if Jesus' death has completely paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future, well, it's no big deal whether I stop sinning or carry on, is it? Might as well. But that is just a perverse way to think. I mean, if you smoke 40 a day, ignore the warnings, and you get lung cancer, but by the brilliance of the medical care you receive, you're completely healed. At that point, when you are given the all clear, you don't say, great, puff away. Now, at that point, at that point, you thank God you're alive and you do everything to ensure that you never touch another cigarette again in your life. When you get that Jesus' death on the cross has completely saved you from, from hell, from God's eternal judgment. When you get that, you do everything you can to, to, to put off the old self, to turn away from sin and to enjoy the freedom. And walk the other way entirely. Now before we move on and examine this, the, the other side. The, the new life. There is something else that I think it is just worth uh, mentioning. Do you notice that Paul has to encourage us very, very strongly. He's writing to Christians. And he has to say, look, I insist on it in the Lord. This is something that I've really got to speak strongly to you about. Don't live in sin like this. Now, Paul tells us that, and Paul has to stress it because it is a genuine struggle for us, for Christians. So do not be surprised when you find as you get to know other Christians at church that sometimes they're struggling with really serious sin. Gross sexual immorality, deceiving clients at work, violent aggression. Christians shouldn't do those things. We shouldn't. God has set us free from them, but Paul has to tell us not to do them because if your heart is anything like mine, anything like the hearts of the people Paul is writing to, we're tempted to and we struggle not to. And sometimes we give in to that temptation. And there can be a sort of Christian naivety that ignores what the Bible actually teaches about the ongoing struggle with sin that Christians have. And it it kind of expects, so you've been saved by Jesus and so now you have a sort of heavenly perfection. No, 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 that perfection's for when Jesus returns and transforms us. And that kind of attitude that just naively thinks Christians will be perfect now that we've been forgiven, it just leads to fakery and hypocrisy. We all pretend we're much better than we are because we think we're meant to be better than we know we are. Or it leads to judgmentalism and harshness when others fall because well, people aren't supposed to do that sort of thing, even though I know I'm struggling with it, so we must condemn them. But I want to tell you, you do not have to wear a mask in church You can be struggling with really serious, awful things. If you're struggling with ugly, messy sins, I want to tell you that is to be expected. Don't be shocked by what others confess. Don't be surprised with what you're struggling with in your own heart. But that is not the end of the story. Don't be shocked, don't be surprised, but don't settle either. As Paul says, it is not good enough for Christians just to carry on like that. Help one another to fight sin. Don't give in, don't settle, fight. And he tells us, secondly, uh, to put off the old and to put on the new. Don't live like those who, who don't know Christ. That's no longer who you are. That's no longer what you are. Instead, put on the new. Verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in in true righteousness and holiness. Live in a way which is fitting for those who've been... forgiven and, and set free by jesus christ that's your privilege and there are, there are two things that are on the sheet that paul tells us in these verses two things that are involved in in putting on the new clothes the new life learn christ and live christ now verses 20 and 21 are full of, of learning language verse 20 that's not however that however is not the way of life you learned Twenty-one. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. We learn a way of life. We learn about the factual real man, Jesus, and, we, and we're taught the truth of him. Now, there, we actually miss something in the translation here in verse 20. It's a difficult verse to translate. Um, but Paul is indeed talking about a new life when verse 20 says, That's not, however, the way of life you learned. But actually, what he, what he literally says is, that's not how you learned Christ. Not That's not how you learned to live. Not even that's not how you learned about Christ. But that's not how you learned Christ. The heart of Christianity is, is not a set of ethics that you learn and live. The heart of Christianity is a person you love and follow. Jesus Christ. To become a Christian is is to learn enough about Jesus Christ that I think I can trust that he died for my sins and he rose again. That's what it is to become a Christian. To learn enough that I can trust him. To grow as a Christian is to learn Christ more deeply. To understand more and more from his word, the Bible, about who he is, what he taught, and what it means to follow him. Learn Christ To grow as a Christian is to learn Christ more and more, but it doesn't stop with accumulating knowledge about him and growing in relationship with him. Having learned Christ, we are to live Christ. Pick it up at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. Having learned Christ. Live Christ. Follow him. Live as he lived. In the way that you treat people who are different from you. People who wrong you and hurt you. In a way that you use your time. Your money. Your resources. The way you treat the poor. The way you respond to temptation to sin. Learn Christ and live the way he lived. You see, God is at work in us, verse 23. He is making us new. It's not something we do. It's something that's being done to us. God is at work restoring us. And what he is doing, verse 24, is to make, making us to be like himself, to be like God. When you turn to God, he's, he starts to restore the image of God in us, which is so marred and flawed and cracked and scarred. And God starts to work to restore that. And the work he begins now will carry on right until the day of completion, the day of Christ, when we will be perfect again as we were meant to be, given new bodies and new souls in which to enjoy the new creation forever. Now, salvation is a free gift. This is very important. God freely gives you complete forgiveness for all your sins. All the guilt, all the shame, all of it was heaped on Jesus. All of it was taken voluntarily by Jesus. But key to that salvation is not just forgiveness for our past, but also a new life to live now. A life uh, marked not just by the the ugliness and mess of sin, but a, a life marked by the beauty and the purpose of living God's way. God has given you a new life to live. It's not a requirement, if you like. It's not a burden he's placed on you. It's a freedom he's entrusted to you. He sets you free from sin and its deceit and darkness and corruption and pain and misery. And says, enjoy living how you are meant to live. In the freedom of your creator. Now, if... True change follows from thinking rightly, as he says in verse 17. And as we saw in verse 18, um, bad living is driven by bad thinking. Well, how can we ensure, verse 23, that we are being made new in the the attitude of our minds? Well, perhaps the clearest verse, there, there are a number of places you could go. Colossians 3, for instance. But in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul explains that as we contemplate the Lord's glory... As we, as we look at Christ in the scriptures, we are being transformed into his image. As we fill our minds with the truth of Christ in the Bible, ugly, trivial, materialistic, dirty thoughts are driven out. And they're replaced with true and rich and beautiful and God-honoring thoughts. We become more like him. Paul prayed, we saw a few weeks back in three eighteen to 19, that we might have power together with all God's people to grasp how high and broad and long and deep the love of God is. And when our minds are just blown away, convinced, amazed by the truth of God's love, then we will start to live differently. Out of a new mind, a new understanding, new attitudes, new emotions, new practices will begin to flow. Things that fit with the new you. Over in, uh, in Matthew 22, Jesus told a parable, a story with a point, in which he likens entry into God's eternal kingdom as a wedding feast. He often uses this image. And the the wedding feast is open to all, uh, but better still, he provides the, the wedding clothes you need. I mean, we all know from the royal weddings, you have to be dressed up to the nines to, to gain entry into the wedding. And it's like that in the, the wedding that he speaks about. But he provides the outfit that we need if we're going to be accepted into this this wedding party. But at the end of the parable, there's somebody there and he's just wearing his scruffy old clothes. And the king says, what are you doing here dressed like that? You know you can't be in here dressed like that. There's no answer. And so he is cast out. Jesus gives us a free gift, the wedding clothes that we need, the new self. And he warns us that we need to wear them if we're going to be received into his kingdom. But the sad truth is that there will always be some who think, yeah, whatever, Jesus. They hear the call that we've got to take off the old and put on the new. And, well, they straighten the collar a bit and polish the shoes and, you know, just smarten up. But they won't take off the old attitudes. They won't get rid of the long-held racism or the love of money or the addiction to pornography, or the proud judgmentalism, or the unwillingness to forgive, or the habit of cruel, divisive gossip. And Jesus says, look, in the end, if you won't get rid of those things, if you're so keen to hang on to them, you show you are not my people at all, and they will be cast out. If we turn up to Jesus' paradise kingdom, still clothed in sexual immorality, our greed, our selfishness, he will say to us, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in dressed like that. Oh, come on, Jesus, don't be so extra. It's only, it's only one shirt. It's just quite, you know, I've worn it for ages and I just kind of like it. You're not coming in with that greed. You either take it off or you stay outside. God is at work to make you into something very, very glorious. He is at work to restore you into his image so that you reflect, radiate the glory of almighty God. Our privilege is we get to live out that status. And that that new life, that new status is pictured as, as fresh, beautiful clothes that God gives us to wear. But it is up to us whether we decide we want to wear those clothes or not. Whether we want to live out this freedom or not. And we will only live out that freedom. We'll only wear those clothes if we if we think, if we're convinced that living God's way is the best way. I, um, a number of years ago, I played in an indoor cricket tournament. Cricket is quite a genteel sport but indoor cricket is actually it's a it's a seriously high intensity activity and it was a whole day tournament and by the end it wasn't that I had sweat patches on my cricket whites they were a sweat patch it was disgusting I mean really really foul um but we we'd done quite well in the tournament so we went out to celebrate afterwards and I just took off the the whites before I showered and then slung them into my cricket kit bag and then we went out and then got home very late so that just went into the bottom of the cupboard forgot about it until six months later I had a client cricket match and uh, so so grabbed the bag out and went to work got the taxi to the client's ground and and then opened the bag and it was like opening a sewer there was yeah, there were mushrooms growing out of the armpit of my cricket shirt it was just horrific but I had no choice. That was the only whites I had to, uh, I had to wear. So I had to put them on. Uh, and they made me feel sort of over another pitch entirely. And like, just stay away from everywhere. I cannot tell you what a relief it was to finally peel those foul clothes off and uh, rinse myself off with bleach and, uh, <laughs> and then shower. It was just, they were so disgusting. Uh, they should have been incinerated in a hazmat un- unit or something, but... You could not have paid me enough money to put those whites back on after I'd showered and been washed clean. You could not have paid me. When you become a Christian, it's as if Jesus strips off all the filth and the ugliness and the shame of our sin, and he washes us clean, fully forgiven. And then he gives us new clothes to wear says you're a new creation the old has gone and the new has come this is who you are now this is your identity live it and enjoy it and every time we sin it's like we go back and open the bag and pull out the fetid foul clothes and and put them on on our clean bodies it is just madness it is disgusting it makes no sense whatsoever And so Paul says, I urge you in the Lord, don't do it. Each day, as you get up, put Christ into your mind and put Christ on as your lifestyle. That's the call here. Put him into your mind as you you feed yourself with his word, the Bible, at the start of each day. And put him on as your lifestyle. As you resolve, in response to God's word, I'm going to live his way. And live out the freedom he has given to obey him. Each day as you get up. If you trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Each day as you get up. Put Christ into your mind. And put Christ on as your free lifestyle. Let's pray. Our Father God. Forgive us for how often we go back. And put on the filth of our old ways. Thank you that in Christ you have washed us clean. So if we trust in you, we are clean. Even in the midst of our failures and our struggles, we are clean. But we pray that we would rejoice in that cleanness, in that newness, in that freedom. And we would turn away from sin and we would live for you. Help us too to be a church where uh, we don't pretend that we're better than we are, that we can admit to the seriousness of our struggles and help us to help one another to turn away from sin. Help us to help one another to live in your freedom and to walk away from the filth of the old ways. And we ask this for your glory and so that your glory might shine out from this church, that people might see how good your ways are and how wonderful the freedom we have in Christ is. Amen.